0: Whether it's Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx, or anywhere in our fine city, we're seeing a problem with crime. These seemingly random acts of violent crime have been covered a great deal. And I think a lot of the commentary on these crimes tends to miss the point. It's not as if all of a sudden bad guys started to uh, think that they can get away with more crimes. That's not what's driving. These more extreme violent incidents, somebody that has put their finger, in my judgment, on what a big part of the problem is, is Brian Stetton, who wrote a terrific op-ed, I guess a couple of weeks ago, in the New York Daily News. Uh, He is the policy director of the Treatment Advocacy Center and a former assistant attorney general. Brian, thanks for staying up late with us on the radio. Appreciate
1: you joining me. Frank, thanks so much for having me on. Great to be with you.
0: So how prevalent is it to have seriously mentally ill people on the streets of New York? Are people literally in danger of encountering someone that's seriously mentally ill on a daily basis?
1: Well, look, there are seriously mentally ill people all around us. There are family members, there are neighbors, and by and large, they are not people we need to be afraid of, because I think we have to really keep in mind that with treatment – we have study after study that tells us that people with severe mental illness are no more likely to engage in in criminal acts or or, or, uh, be dangerous or scary than than anyone else. Uh, The the, the problem comes into play when we're talking about this small subset of people with severe mental illness who on any given day are untreated. And, uh, you know, that's a problem with a pretty clear solution. We have to make treatment available to more folks. But, uh, you know, it's estimated that um, about one in ten homicides in the United States are associated with untreated severe mental illness, which is uh, obviously a small minority. It's by no means uh, the bulk of, of homicides, but it's also a percentage that's disproportionate to the numbers of folks that we're talking about. Uh, these illnesses occur in about four percent of the population, and so it's you know it's a disproportionate share um, relative to uh, the, the number of people who. We're speaking of.
0: You write Um, that uh, 23 years ago, you and then State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer sat in a Buffalo conference room with the grieving family of Kendra Webdale, and she became the namesake of Kendra's Law. Explain to us what Kendra's Law is
1: and how it came about. Sure. Uh, Kendra's law is about outpatient civil commitment. Uh, I think everybody's probably familiar with inpatient civil commitment, that is commitment to a hospital when a person is uh, in an acute psychiatric crisis, when they are a danger to themselves or others and don't understand their need for treatment. We have have always had laws that make it possible to have that person uh, placed in a hospital and, and, and given care. Um, Outpatient civil commitment, what we have under Kendra's law, comes into play not when a person is in a crisis, but when a person actually has been stabilized and is ready to leave the hospital, but has a history that gives us reason to be concerned about what's going to happen to them uh, in the community because we're talking about people who have demonstrated uh, a great deal of difficulty staying engaged with their outpatient treatment. Uh, It's very common that people with severe mental illness lack insight into their illness. They don't always understand they have a need for treatment. Treatment. And so many people struggle uh, to stay uh, engaged, to stay adherent to their medications and other treatment. And so when we have someone who we, we've identified as, as uh, fitting this pattern, who's, who's been through this ringer, who's kind of caught in this revolving door of the public mental health system, uh, when we release them from the hospital under Kendra's law, we attach a court order to their outpatient treatment plan so that the court has some oversight power and we're able to monitor. Uh, how adherent they are to their treatment. And uh, also the the law puts the system under the court order as well. So it becomes kind of a mutual commitment where we're going to make sure the person actually gets the services they need. And uh, what it changes is that if the person then becomes non-adherent to treatment, uh, their caregivers have legal authority to take some action, bring them back to the hospital and reevaluate their needs and don't have to wait For something terrible to happen, wait for them to act out in some some way that establishes that they're dangerous to themselves or others. We can respond to the non-adherence with treatment and hopefully nip the situation in the bud.
0: So I don't know your politics, but Elliot Spitzer, the attorney general at the time, was a Democrat. The governor at the time, George Pataki, was a Republican, the state Senate majority leader. Joe Bruno at the time was a Republican, the speaker of the state assembly. Sheldon Silver was a Democrat. And these entities, uh, Silver, Spitzer, Bruno, Pataki, all work together to pass Kendra's law. Um, how has it worked out over the last 23 years?
1: well to the extent the law has been used it 's been remarkably effective you know there, there There were really terrible predictions made by some of the opponents to the law who said that we were violating people 's civil rights and said that you know this isn't going to work it 's going to be counterproductive it 's going to drive people underground and keep people from seeking treatment because uh they're going to be afraid of this scarlet letter that 's going to be placed on them uh, by, by by being placed into this program. Uh, none of that, of course, happened, and in fact, the law has for the people who 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 participated in this program um, have actually seen their freedom increase quite a bit because they are not spending as much time in the hospital and as much time as jail uh, we 've seen really dramatic um, impacts on hospitalization and incarceration rates for people who have been through this program. And these are the, really the most vulnerable individuals in the public mental health system. Um, people who just rack up staggering numbers of hospitalizations. And look, it's not a magic wand. These are still people who struggle a great deal and and, and, and will inevitably wind up back in the hospital from time to time. But um, the, the the research is very clear that the not only do they get hospitalized less often. When they do go in, they they get out sooner because they go in less acutely ill. And so it's allowed people to you know live the lives of their choosing much more than they would have been able to had they had this quote unquote freedom of of not being made subject to this law.
0: We're talking with Brian Stetton. He's the policy director of the Treatment Advocacy Center and a former assistant attorney general, also happens to be one of the architects of Kendra's Law. Brian, you prefaced your answer to my last question by saying to the extent that it's been used. Yep. Am I to understand then that Kendra's Law hasn't been broadly used enough in New York State and New York City?
1: Well, I think there are really good reasons to, um, to wonder whether it's being used as much as it ought to be. You know, the law has very clear criteria as to who is eligible for it. It's not for even the typical person with severe mental illness. It's specifically for people who have a history of not adhering to their treatment and winding up in the hospital or committing acts of violence as a result of that. And, you know, the goal of the city and the state really should be to ensure that every person who meets those criteria, who has this history and at this moment are found by their doctor to be unlikely to adhere to treatment voluntarily. Every person who meets those criteria should be a part of this program. And the law allows for a court order that lasts for up to a year, but that can be renewed. And there are folks who are going to graduate from the program, who are going to develop habits of treatment engagement through the use of this uh, law and, and will be able to do it voluntarily after a period of time. There are others who are going to need to have this renewed and stay on it for you know years uh, it It just depends on that particular person's baseline um, and so when we see incidents like you know what happened to Michelle Go in the subway just a f- couple of weeks ago, um, and you, you see an individual who clearly had a history of um, violence and, and, and hospitalization. I mean, he really checked both boxes, both doors that get you into Kendra's law. Um, he, 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 he pushes right through. So, um, you know, he that instant, and many others that we have seen in the news in recent years really give me reason to wonder whether all is being done to ensure that everybody out there who meets these criteria is being identified and, and, and made subject to the law.
0: You mentioned Simon Marshall, who you spent a fair amount of time writing about in your op-ed for the Daily News, uh, which if people haven't read, I'm going to link to on uh, my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. This is the mentally ill man that was responsible for this uh, horrible uh, subway death. Why, in spite of his history, he was still in a position to push her onto the, uh, onto the subway tracks. It, where is the hesitance in implementing uh, Kendra's law? Is it on the part of police? Is it on the part of judges, prosecutors, family members, policymakers? Who is being reluctant to use it? From what you, you know, can tell,
1: yeah, I, I don't know that it's hesitance or reluctance so much as uh, inertia. <laughs> it just the, the system not responding at the moments it has this, this opportunity to identify an individual. I think it's just. You know, people slipping through the cracks more than anybody making a, an ideological decision that, no, this person should not, should not uh, be part of this program. Uh, I think we're just missing uh, opportunities. You know, every time a person is discharged from a hospital where they, they wound up in that hospital because they didn't engage with their treatment, or every time a person is released from uh, a jail um, w- when they wound up in jail because they didn't engage with treatment, that is an opportunity to identify someone who meets the criteria for Kendra's law, what we call AOT, assisted outpatient treatment. And um, it's clear to me that not every hospital in the city, uh, not every jail in the city is is uh, taking advantage of those opportunities upon discharging folks to analyze whether that person meets the criteria and, and make sure they become part of the program if they do. And so I really think the answer and the solution is going to be just in terms of putting procedures and protocols in place to make sure all these folks get evaluated at these junctures where they're being discharged from these hospitalizations and arrests.
0: Is it difficult to navigate concerns that some people might have about civil rights? Let's say I'm schizophrenic and I don't want to take my medication. Is it difficult for you or anybody to
1: force me to take my medication? Well, it's appropriately difficult. You know, the law is is designed to ensure that we're not going to impose this lightly. Uh, There are a certain uh, number of things that have to be proven in court to establish that a person meets the criteria. Uh, This evidence has to be presented to a judge and proven by clear and convincing evidence, which is a pretty high evidentiary standard in a civil case. And, uh, of course, the person gets counsel. And they have an opportunity to uh, challenge the evidence that's presented, even present their own expert witness. If they have a psychiatrist that says, no, they don't meet these criteria, the person gets that opportunity. Uh, And so, you know, they get their day in court. And that's how we ensure that we're not going to trample over anybody's rights. And that's certainly an important part of how this works. Here in New
0: York, uh, there was a lot of attention paid during the de Blasio administration to something called Thrive NYC. Now, this program has been Um, It's become wildly unpopular, so much so that uh, Eric Adams, when he talked about his recent mental health initiative, he made a point of not calling it Thrive and uh, calling it something different and saying formerly known as Thrive New York City. What was the problem with Mayor de Blasio and Shalane McRae's uh, Thrive New York City program? Why did it fail to address people like Simon Marshall before they were in a position to throw someone onto the subway?
1: Yeah, because it focused on on a whole different set of issues. You know, they they announced their goal it, it, with that uh, set of programs as uh, protecting the mental health of all New Yorkers as if all the mental health struggles that that, that that any of us may go through over the course of our lives are somehow interconnected and have something to do with what people with really severe mental illness are going through. Um, and many of those 54 programs that were in that initial Thrive NYC package were uh, related to Things that, you know, people having stress and anxiety over COVID or crime victims feeling unsafe about walking down the street, serious issues. Not anything I would say we shouldn't find some room to deal with in a big city government, Um, but really not related to the problem of people with severe mental illness. That is those who are totally disconnected from reality. Um, who uh, have a need to be receiving treatment in, in order to, to, to be safe to themselves and safe to the rest of us.
0: So the emphasis on Thrive was improving everybody's mental health, uh, including if you have anxiety, if you're stressed out, uh, you're nervous about COVID, you're nervous about uh, too much crime in the city of New York. And it was not an emphasis on the 2 or 3% of people that are violently schizophrenic and may not be taking their medication.
1: That's right, and there were some programs in there that are good for people with severe mental illness. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but uh, as you say, the emphasis was in the wrong place, and even the programs that did deal with severe mental illness were avoiding the you know unpleasant reality that some of that times that treatment that we offer to people has to be ma- made available on an involuntary basis, because folks don't always recognize their own need for treatment, and without that, Involuntary aspect of it in the mix, um, you're just not going to reach the the people who we need to be the most concerned about.
0: You, You refer to the fact that we might not always recognize our own need for treatment. A lot of the people that do recognize that are the family members of the seriously mentally ill. Do family members need greater tools in the legal toolbox to get their family members' help, or are those are those uh, functions already in place?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things that we could really do to, to, to make life easier for these families that, that go through hell. Um, for one thing, we ought to interpret our laws on, on hospitalizing people more compassionately. Uh, people are often told that they can't get their loved ones uh, involuntary care when they desperately need it unless they are dangerous to themselves or others. And the way that tends to be interpreted is the person has to be violent. Or suicidal, or doing something outrageously dangerous, like walking into traffic or trying to fly off the top of a building. Um, if you're not doing any, if not checking any of those boxes, you are often not considered to be a danger to yourself or others. And so families are told, uh, you know, we just have to wait till he does something that that proves that he is violent or suicidal or, or, or going to die imminently. And uh, w- while we're waiting around for that to happen, the person is getting sicker and sicker. If we would recognize that a person is dangerous to themselves if they can't meet their basic survival deeds, right? If they can't protect their brain from the damage that it, that, that it uh, undergoes when treatment is withheld day after day and that person gets sicker and sicker and their, their prospects for recovery get lower because of the actual damage to the brain that's taking place, that's a real way of being a danger to yourself. And if, if, if the law were to recognize that and I think we really could recognize it in terms of the way the law is written, it's really just more about the interpretation, and it's exacerbated by the fact that there aren't really enough beds to, to, to get care for everybody who needs it. Um, but, but families would get a lot more relief from the system if the law were interpreted more compassionately. So that's one big part of it. Another thing I'll say is that families really um, go through hell with trying to get information. Uh, from the treatment system about their loved one because of the interpretation of some of the health privacy laws. Uh, and, you know, it's understandable why doctors are sometimes reluctant to uh, disclose to families how their loved one is doing when, the, when, the, when the, sure. the mentally ill person doesn't want that information released. You know, there are laws that, that, that protect that information, but these laws get interpreted so extremely because these hospitals are so worried about getting sued that you have family members who can't even give information themselves to to the doctor, right? They're told, well, I can't have a conversation with you, which includes, I can't even listen to what you have to tell me about your loved one, which might actually help me provide care to them. Uh, and, you know, there's also an exception in the law when it's in the person's best interest that the doctor truly believes it's in the best interest of the individual to have that information revealed to the family member. There are allowances for that to happen. And, you know, that's very rarely invoked. So, Uh, The law is definitely not uh, really on the side of of families the way it ought to be.
0: Uh, Final question, and I could talk with you all day. I'm just uh, way late here, and I hope you'll come back. But are there other cities that do this well, whether it's the implementation of Kendra's Law or something like Kendra's Law? Is there any city or state that you'd point to as a model for dealing
1: with the seriously mentally ill? (sighs) You you know, there are uh, a lot of cities who do certain things well. There's certainly some models out there in terms of AOT Um, I think the city of San Antonio does a wonderful job with that. They have a a, a really great approach to it, very different than New York's, and where the judge is really kind of involved in motivating and inspiring the person, something I think we could do a lot more of in New York. Uh, The city of Tucson, Arizona, does a a much better job than we do in New York in terms of um, responding to crisis and making sure that uh, you have mental health professionals on the front line of uh, of situations that – take place in the community so that we can de-escalate those situations and not always turn them into criminal events. Uh, so, yeah, I do think there are lots of lessons that can be learned out there from some. of Brian, that, uh, we're
0: going to have to end it there. Thank you for the time this morning, and uh, I hope we can chat again soon.
1: My pleasure. I'd love to come that's back.
0: That's Brian Stetton. He's the policy director of the Treatment Advocacy Center. If you want to read this op-ed, I found it to be right on the money. You can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash